Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Whether you're starting a game or starting your day, you need to pick a starting lineup. And you're going to want the starter from Jack Black. Loaded with the superior skincare the pros love, Kings fans can get the starter for just $10, shipping included. Available exclusively at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, the starter has four of Jack Black's best-selling skincare and shave products, plus a full-sized intense therapy lip balm, SPF 25, in natural mint. Here's to the winning combination for 2022, the LA Kings and the starter from Jack Black. $10 plus free shipping, available at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, while supplies last. You're listening to an LA Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit LAKings.com slash podcast. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the LA Kings. Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. I am Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. In recent seasons, we've used the time between the end of the Kings season and the NHL entry draft as a time to do player evaluations and draft prospect talk. Because we're dealing with a shorter time frame and because the Kings used so many players and so many of those players were used sparingly, uh, rather than do a player-by-player evaluation, I wanted to dive into an evaluation of the team as a whole and how the season unfolded. So, to that end... I invited Edward Egros to join me on the podcast, and I had intended to get right into some of the specifics, but we got caught up in a more general conversation about statistics versus narrative, some other fancy stat talk. Um, Anyway, Ed is going to come back and flesh out a lot of the concepts you'll hear us talk about in just a bit. But for now, consider this a little fancy stat amuse-bouche before the main course starts next week. Hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now to take a look back at the King's season, but more importantly, lay some foundational vocabulary for our conversations. Edward Egros from uh, Bally Sports West, FanDuel, Pepperdine University, a bunch of different places. Ed, is it Edward, Ed, do you, Eddie, Ted? Like, what's your preference? I go by Edward or Ed. Either one is fine. And I know in the hockey community that Eddie is also out there, which, sure. uh, you know, I understand. Uh, but uh, it's funny, uh, as a kid, it was Edward in college, it was Ed. And then after that, depending upon how you know me, it's either or, but I answer to both. Fair warning, I will probably lapse back and forth between Edward and Ed. So uh, let's get started. I was reading your uh, your How to Code blog mm-hmm. and uh, read Why Did I Start This Blog? Um, and I was fascinated because I love the idea of statistics. I love the idea of advanced analytics. I confess I have no uh, patience or skill for math, but I have some friends who really do. And I've always said to them, gosh, I wish you liked sports so you could explain to me (laughs) what these articles that I come across mean because I want to know what they mean. But I, I my eyes roll back in my head and I sort of go like if it's not really simple and easy to grasp, I tend to dismiss it. Um, So how did you become somebody who loved math and like how did how do those two worlds collide 
It's interesting because if if I sort of take a macrocosmic level and begin at you know a, a day one at birth and then work all the way <laughs> to my age today, I feel like I've vacillated. I feel like I've gone back and forth because I think when I was a kid, I was always interested in math. I think those skill sets uh, always came naturally to me in terms of your basic arithmetic and then getting into algebra and things like that. Those were always comfortable for me. And then all of a sudden I said, you know what? I want to be a journalist, maybe writing, maybe English, maybe those weren't my best skill sets say graduating from high school and getting into college and things like that. But something said, go be a journalist. And so what I wound up doing at SMU where I went to undergrad was I double majored in journalism and statistical uh, statistical economics or econometrics. And then I got a math minor as well. And so knocked all of that out and decided, you know what, I'm going to do the less risk averse thing and go be on TV. And so I got my first, uh, (laughs) local TV no, gig in El Paso. No risk in yeah. that at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely none. Yeah. So this is this is why it's a good idea uh, not to tie yourself down at college time uh, so that you're uh, supporting a family and things like that upon graduation, because otherwise we would have gone a completely different direction. But that's the idea is that I, I decided to go the television route and I bounced around from market to market and eventually made my way to Dallas. And I was covering the Cowboys. I was covering the Stars uh, when they had their nice uh, playoff run, uh, getting into the second round. And what was fascinating to me was that I was starting to see all of these econometric tools that I had learned being used in literature, like, say, in Moneyball or in baseball prospectus and certainly in other sports. And then in hockey, you know, with stat shot and things like that, I was also seeing that work occur there. And I thought, well, I know how to do these things. I have these skills. Why don't I bolster them, get a master's degree in predictive analytics and do it online completely, you know, <laughs> wear myself out while also doing the uh, TV thing and go, you know what? I'm able to sort of talk about this stuff, but also in a conversational way because I'm on television and that's kind of the requirement in journalism, right? Is making sure that you can speak to a general audience. And I figured, well, this is something that I should have been prepped to do for a long time by this point. So why not go ahead and give it a try and sort of differentiate myself from uh, most any other random journalist who covers hockey and baseball and all this fun stuff. And so that's basically what I did. And so uh, eventually I found my way to Los Angeles. I found my way to Bally Sports West and FanDuel and all these other great organizations. And I've been having a blast ever since. I'm going <laughs> to backtrack a few sentences and drill down on two words out of all of that. Uh, you mentioned predictive analytics. And what I want to get into right now is the notion of prediction, because you know, I see all these articles and, you know, the one that I'm fascinated by is expected goals, better predictor of future success than Corsi or than actual goals scored or any other, you know, it seems pretty clear that actual goals scored is not a predictive stat. But my question is, given how much everything changes and given how, how precise every scenario is, and given especially the difference between the playoffs and the regular season, where you're actually playing the same opponent seven games, it's an incredibly small sample size, but it's also a sample size that in, that allows your opponent incredible information about you. Whereas if you're in the midst of an 82 game season, right? If you separate any seven games in the midst of an 82 game season, 
seven different opponents, seven different matchups, seven different coaching staffs, right? An infinite number of variants. Whereas in a playoff series, if they figure you out in game one, that's it. You know, you're done. Um, so what, I mean, I don't even, there really wasn't even a question in there. So I'll try and, and cram it into a question. Like what is the predictive value of some of these advanced stats really? So one of the things that I look at in terms of figuring that out, because mm-hmm. a lot of different entities come out with, you know, even newer things like RAPM, uh, you know, real What's adjusted that? plus minus. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's something that's, that's relatively new. So think, so plus minus, as you know, when a player's on the ice and their team scores a goal, you get a plus. And if your team's on the ice and you allow a goal, you have a minus. And what RAPM is meant to do is basically hone it down to the individual level. Because if, say, I am foolishly part of some random hockey organization and I'm on the bottom of the bottom line and I have to get out there and play, but I have some incredible offensive shooters and a goal is scored, then I get a plus. Even though I have done very little ice skating in my life, somehow I still have a better plus minus than say someone who is experienced in that regard. And so you have stats out there that are attempting to strip away other factors, like how good your team is and the setting you're in the score, venue adjustment, those kinds of things. And I only bring this up as an example because you have newer statistics that are out there that are attempting to better explain what's going on. But then you also have things that are meant to, predict what's going to happen going forward. Expected goals in and of itself doesn't really tell you a whole lot as far as how a skater is skating, how they're shooting, how they're scoring in the here and the now. But when it comes to looking ahead and determining, okay, who is going to be good? Who perhaps is dealing with some bad puck luck or good luck, whatever it might be, then expected goals can be quite useful. And just a quick review of expected goals, basically a number of different factors go in to determine the probability that a shot will become a goal, like where you are on the ice, how far away you are from the net, the angle of the shot, is it a rebound, those kinds of things. And Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lots of different entities will calculate expected goals in different ways. How Sport Logic does it is different than, say, how Natural Stat Trick does it is different than how several other places do it. And this is important because goals are basically infrequent events. They don't happen very often. And so, yeah, I can point to some skater having a bunch of goals, but what I want to know in the predictive world is, are they going to continue scoring goals or is this going to wane? Is this going to get worse because say shots just happen to be going in, whatever the case may be. And that to me is way more interesting as far as looking ahead to say the next playoff series, the rest of the season or next season as well. So let's, Let's weave the Kings into this conversation since ostensibly this is a Kings podcast. 
and uh, people want to hear us talk about the Kings. So when I'm um, looking at a player or even a team, um, you mentioned plus minus, and and I'm well familiar with all of the arguments as to why plus minus as we're used to it is an imperfect stat. You have empty net goals, you have guys getting on and off the ice, you have tip-ins, deflections, all sorts of random events that don't necessarily reflect how well a player is playing, but they wind up on the plus or minus you know, side of the sheet in, in a certain instance. But for me, I use plus minus as a in a, a, as a as the once upon a time of a story about a player right so i start with plus minus and i go all right well what is it it's he's plus three okay well let's find out how many minutes he played let's find out what is you know how many goals he scored how many goals he was on the ice against uh how many (laughs) how many times he was on the ice for a goal against is what i want to say um there you go yeah. So, so for example, teams, right? So the first thing I look at when I want to find out like, okay, the Kings made the playoffs, but how good were they? I pull up the regular season. I pull up now I go to natural statric. That's always my starting place. You know, just, I don't know why just it is. Um, and I go, all right, the Kings were fifth overall in even strength Corsi four. And that's where I start. Right. I don't look at that and stop and go, Oh, 54% fifth overall in the league. That means they were good. Is does that sound like a reasonable starting point for a conversation about this King season? I think it can. There is a narrative that I think is a inherently flawed, but it still seems to exist that there is a rivalry, so to speak, between the analytics and say the scouting, sure, the eye test, watching film, all of that. And it's not true because I do believe that one can enhance the other and they bounce ideas off of each other. And then you come up with a product that I think everyone can be happy with. But let's say for the sake of argument that there is a rivalry and you have two mutually exclusive entities and the analytics and the scouting. Analytics can be useful for the predictive side of things, certainly, but also for more macrocosmic ideas where you're looking at big picture and saying, okay, how did this offense perform? How did, the de- how did the defense perform? How did they look when certain line combinations were on the ice, etc.? Then you break it down by actually watching the team and then figuring out, okay, let's look at some real finite specifics and say, okay, how did the skater perform when challenged in this situation? How did he work well on this blue line with this other guy, whatever the case may be? And so To me, statistics can be incredibly useful when you're dealing with a much larger sample size like a regular season. But then when you get into the playoffs and you're dealing with specific matchups in situations where, yes, the sample size is a good bit smaller, but you're also dealing with specific matchups that you're not going to see anywhere else. To me, this is intriguing. And in terms of, you know, making this about the Kings, one of the interesting things that I know a lot of King fans have come out and said in terms of how they performed against the Oilers was, well, we pushed them to seven games. The Flames with a better offense could not even do that. They looked way worse than they did in the second round series. Well, part of that is not necessarily to say, okay, well, the Kings are better than the Flames. It's just that the Kings matched up better against the Oilers than, say, the Flames did. 
the Kings had a different matchup, so to speak, than say the Flames did, where it was basically let's let's shoot it and score it just as much as possible. And the Oilers wound up having, you know, McDavid and Dreisaitl and all these other incredible shooters. And so it's one of those deals where instead of saying, okay, well, the Kings are better, perhaps the more accurate way to put it is, well, they matched up better in this specific situation. If you're looking at more macrocosmic things, then you need to break down stats and numbers in terms of a much larger sample size to make that kind of conclusion. So that's, I mean, that's an interesting distinction in my mind between narrative and analysis. So like, yeah, I love the narrative that the Kings took uh, Edmonds into seven games and and Calgary got bounced in five. And, you know, even on Twitter last night and this morning, I was saying like, listen, Jonathan Quick outperformed uh, Jacob Markstrom and, you know, the combination of, uh, of, of uh, Kemper and Francis so far. So, you know, Lottie Dodge, Jonathan Quick's amazing. <laughs> Um, right. But I don't think that that's particularly valuable analysis. Um, and I'm hoping to do, uh, I'm not going to get super in depth when it comes to analysis, but a little bit more anal- uh, analysis and, and a little bit less narrative because there's plenty of time to do narrative. But um, sure. as it's aside, a long off season for all yeah, of us. <laughs> yes, exactly. But as an aside, I am curious, and this is sort of what I was talking earlier about the difference between regular season and postseason. I don't have anything to back this up other than my feeling, but I feel like the Oilers played McDavid and Dreisaitl separately through the first five games of the series against the Kings and subsequently have played them together. And I feel like that's a pretty distinct difference in approach. Um, And so like, that's where I say, yeah, the first five games versus the second two games is completely different animal. Um, and, you know, I don't know that the Kings would have fared as well had Edmonton gone with that strategy the entire time. But I suppose, you know, who knows? We can't rewind. Uh, we re- rewind time. But we're getting back to the regular season because it is a larger sample size. Actually, before we jump into that, I, I want to give you a can quote. I, can I add a thought to yeah, that? Yes, as far please. As, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I think you bring up an interesting point, And this to me is, is one of the great analytical concepts that we cannot discuss enough. And I think it's also important to bring it up because I think coaches do intuitively understand this, even though they may not have predictive analytics degrees, they may not even embrace data as much as say others do. But where I give Edmonton credit here and, and look, the Kings force the hand, so to speak. And so give the Kings credit in this regard. But this idea of, say, moral victories or keeping things close or what have you, again, it's narrative based. And I think we as a hockey community and maybe we as a sports community uh, on the whole need to move on from that garbage because there was a seminal paper several years ago in the Sloan Sports Analytic Conference uh, held in Boston, MIT, uh, hosted things like that, or runs it rather. And basically, the seminal paper talks about when you are behind, you have to increase variance. So what does that mean? Well, why didn't the Oilers have Dreisaitl and McDavid on the same line? Well, the answer is that there were questions about what kind of defense they would have when both of them are on that first line. But they were trailing in the series. And so basically, at that point, they had nothing to lose. They were trailing in the series after five games by breaking them apart. So if you put them together, 
and say, try to generate more offense, knowing that you may give up a good bit more. Well, it's a different approach, but the approach is something that the Oilers felt compelled that they had to do. Then there was a sort of paradigm shift going into the second series saying, well, guess what? We won two games this way. So why not continue working this way and saying, you know what? If we have these two guys on the ice, no one can outscore us. And yes, we're going to give up a good bit defensively, but this gives us a higher probability of success because we are simply going to outscore Calgary and then whomever we play in the following round. And that's exactly what happened. The Oilers, forced by the Kings, increased the variance to where, yes, the outcome is a little bit less certain, but it was something that they felt compelled to do, and it turned out to work for them. And so that's very much an analytical concept. You increase the variance because if you're in a basketball game and you lose by 30 or lose by five, well, it doesn't really matter. You lost the game, and that's that's all that matters at the end of the day. But if you shoot a good bit more threes, you try and play transition, whatever it might be, then you may be able to catch up and take the lead. And so when teams are trailing, they are forced to do gutsier, less risk-averse things. And sometimes it works out for them, sometimes it doesn't. But what it does do is it gives you an opportunity to win. The Oilers were forced to do that by the Kings. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And that is an important hockey concept. I mean, it's why you pull a goalie you know, earlier than, say, we originally anticipated. You know, a a lot of coaches were afraid to do it, uh, you know, earlier and earlier in the games, and now it's become more embraced, and that's in large part because of increasing the variance. Because if you pull a goalie with, say, a minute, 75 seconds, whatever it might be, well, that's not going to change very much offensively, but if you do it with, say, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes to go, then, yeah, you're increasing the variance to where you could lose by two, three, four goals, but another outcome, which is even likelier, Uh, than it was before, is to get that goal, get that game-tying goal, whatever it might be. I mean, now we're getting into larger, like, psychological, societal, you know, human (laughs) things where, I mean, we... I was promised we would do that. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, but the Kings, I mean, the Kings even said, right, after three games, when it was two to one Edmonton, but the two games that Edmonton had won, they had won by a score of uh, 14 to two, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And then and the rhetoric from the organization was it's not 14 to two. It's two games to one. Like we can't focus on the outcome. We just have to focus on the on the important numbers. And then they wound up taking a three two lead. So, I mean, that it's it's funny to hear you reference that same idea when it comes to the the margin of a victory right at the end of the game, because they said the same thing about the series. Right. It doesn't matter. You know, and and. and Andy Murray was a Kings coach about 20 years ago who was famous for pulling the goalie, I don't know, four or five minutes left in a game. And there's the famous series against Detroit in 2001 in game four, I think it was. And they were down by three and they pulled the goalie with like five minutes left and they wind up winning four to three in overtime because they just kept kept pouring goals in. Um, 
but the, the reason i bring up the whole you know human society thing is like we're just terrible as a species at recognizing actual risk um and so we think oh yeah you can't pull your goalie with three minutes left you'll get scored on and ignoring the fact that you're losing by two goals and if you don't you're gonna like <laughs> hey you're gonna lose um but uh so this is the quote i wanted to run by you and um i won't say who i will just say uh an employee of the la kings who is a, a very influential name within the analytics community very nice uh told me once that if you're choosing between two stats sample size is more important than the accuracy of the given stat i think i'm paraphrasing that correctly and so for example for example if you had 82 games of plus minus versus two games of coursey four 82 games of plus minus is going to tell you more than two games of expected goals or coursey four will because what's more important is a body of information rather than one instance is that something that you agree with per se i absolutely agree with that okay we have statistics out there in hockey and in other sports that are inherently flawed are not as predictive and are not as say interesting or you know explanatory so to speak in terms of what is going on on the ice and that has its limitations, obviously, but the more of that you have, that will supersede something that is a more advanced, more descriptive statistic, but you have a much smaller sample size. And in fact, it's it's funny that you bring that up because I believe uh, it was Tango Tiger on Twitter who talks largely about baseball, but he will bring up hockey as well. He basically said the same thing. He said, I'd rather have more goal-based stats over the last 10 seasons than say one season of expected goal numbers. And I have not actually run data to figure out what explains more and what's more predictive. But to me, that checks out that 10 years of flawed numbers versus one year of really good numbers. I'd rather have the 10 years. But over time, you want to get to the expected numbers and other advanced statistics. And so he says that the break-even point is about three seasons worth of expected advanced data. I, I couldn't exactly say if that's the right number to me. Maybe it's more like four or something of the sort. But again, intuitively, that checks out. And it's one of the reasons why there are two things that sort of force us to take a much longer period of time to embrace analytics. One is just having enough seasons worth of data. But then there's also the cultural aspect explaining why this is important, why these things are much more predictive and explaining culturally why these things matter and that we're not just a bunch of nerds. So the reason I the reason I bring that up is because the Kings have this incredibly important offseason coming up. And my fear is that um the wrong lessons will be taken away from the season. And one But of we're my, not Toronto. That's important. Well that is that <laughs> <laughs> narratively that's very important. Mm-hmm. Um but one of the things, one of I have all these dumb little analogies and stories in my head that I tell that make perfect sense to me. And one of them is uh, I always caution against the people who uh, have you ever seen the movie Ratatouille? No, I haven't. 
It's a delightful movie by Pixar. It's one of my favorite movies. Anyway, the premise of the movie is that uh, there's this rat and he can cook. He's an incredible chef, like one of the finest chefs in all of France, but he's a rat. Sacre bleu. Yes, indeed. Um, so, of course, he's he's a filthy rat, so he's not going to get any opportunities to be a chef. So he hides under a human's, you know, very tall chef's hat. And by pulling on his hair, he manipulates his arms. It's, you know, it's a cartoon. Uh, but anyway, the, the kid that he's manipulating gets credit for being this incredible chef. And then when it's finally revealed that it's actually a rat, everybody, oh, a rat. Uh. Anyway, the moral of the story is that your background shouldn't matter. You know, your skill and your talent and your heart, whatever is what should matter. My fear is that people watch that movie and the moral they take away from it is, oh, rats can cook. <laughs> Right. Or rats should cook, I suppose. So I'm always very worried that people will see something. And in my mind, like I said, take away from the moral. Oh, rats can cook. And so when I see this season, the Kings made the playoffs. They pushed uh, Edmonton to seven games. They forced them into a strategy that sort of, you know, honed them into a better version. Of, like there's all these. There's all these moments where you can go, look at that. Rats should cook. And I want to just say, like, well, no rats can cook but i'm not sure that they sh i'm not sure that that means that every rat that you should go out into the alley find a rat and throw him in your kitchen and be like yeah whip me up some cordon bleu like mm -mm. so uh so for example i see people throwing out expected goals in a single game or even in a seven game series and they go oh well look at that this rookie who's never had postseason experience before and who got utterly dominated along the wall but Ah, uh, 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 you know, expected goals of, you know, on the positive side of 54. And I go, well, I just don't know that that's the lesson I want to take from that. Um, that's a whole lot of preamble for not much payoff. But are there, <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is, are there any, from your perspective, uh, is there any way to frame these stats in a way that highlights the fact that small sample size is a dangerous element when it comes to leaning on them too heavily i'll just pull one player uh for example and i don't want to pick on them um but I'll, I'll go the opposite route instead of the incredible positive i'll just look at uh on the negative side of things for example sean walker um Oh, no, I'm looking at the wrong stat. Sorry, hold on. Uh, Martin, well, I'll go on the positive side. Martin Furk, six games played, expected goals for 62.25% in the regular season. Right. It would be very easy to look at that and go, well, the absolute best players on the Kings and expected goals are Martin Furk and Christian Wolana. But they played six and eight games respectively. So, like, how much weight do we put in an expected goals you know, percentage on six games versus when you're saying what three seasons is when you need to start thinking about it as a. Well, you can look at rate like those yeah. percentages that you cited, or you can look at totals. And that's the beauty of expected goals for and against is you can add them up and you can include sort of that sample size to determine. Let me backtrack for just a bit. Sure. I think one of the things that the analytics community could do a little bit better. And it's also something that I think the sports community and the hockey community could do uh, in a much better way is in a way, trust coaches and front offices that they at least have some competency and some acumen as far as what they are doing. 
And I think one of the key lessons that that I have been wanting to get across in terms of this Kings offseason is to actually embrace that the Kings largely know what they're doing. Now, maybe the execution hasn't been as stellar as it could be, but I have been impressed with with, you know, large overarching philosophies. And so when you're dealing with, say, two specific players who played a handful of games compared with those who played the entire season, and you're looking specifically at expected goal rates, well, that doesn't mean very much because at some point you do have to earn opportunities for ice time. And if you aren't earning those opportunities, then there must be some reason for it. I refuse to believe that a coaching staff is so incompetent that they are looking at these same expected goal rates or their in-house expected goal rates or whatever they may have because what's private may not necessarily be public. And they're looking at uh, more highly refined data and they're saying, you know what? I don't trust it. I just don't look, I just don't like how they look on the ice. Therefore, I'm not going to play them very much. At, at some point, you do have to trust that what they have at their disposal in terms of overall knowledge and data and information, that must mean something. And they are making, in some sense, the best decisions they can make or one of the better decisions you can make among myriad of decisions you can make. I, I think at some point we do have to at least trust that process for the most part. Now, it doesn't work with every franchise, but I think when it comes to the Kings, I think they've earned the benefit of the doubt as far as what we can know from a public standpoint. So if you are looking at a couple of players and they haven't had much ice time, but their expected goal marks are really good, well, look at who they were going up against. Look at if this was garbage time or not. Maybe this was a high variant situation and they were able to score because of that. Maybe it was uh, you know, special teams, five on three. Maybe it was a game that they didn't care about, whatever the case may be. At some point, you do have to look situationally at what they were dealing with. And then you have a much more accurate picture of where those expected goals came from. And specifically with these couple of guys, the stakes were never better in the Edmonton series. There were certainly times when you could basically throw out the kitchen sink and do whatever you want, but they chose not to. And there's got to be a reason for that, especially with the same data that may be available to us publicly, but then that added information by seeing them at practice every day, looking at more advanced in-house models. I think these things matter. Can we, ha can I have you back on like three or four more times in a row? Yeah, why not? Okay, because I feel I got like nothing this, else to do. I, I feel like this conversation was way more <laughs> theoretical, and I do want to drill into these sp more specific things. But I, I, but I'd rather ask you about big picture questions right now. So I'll have you back on in a week or two, uh, and then again, and then again, and then again. I might just, I might just <laughs> have you on. All well, the beauty long. of the calendar app on the phone is yeah. I can say every week, and then Perfect. I am reminded without having to do this three or four times. So a friend of mine sent me this text and I'm going to run you through a bullet points of our conversation. He said, have any theories on why massively out shooting your opponent pretty much means you lose now. Um, which <laughs> I, I don't know if that's actually true, but which it, to me is always important to verify the actual truth of a question before trying to answer it, but whatever, he caught me off guard. So I said, uh, I said, analytics, analytics ruining the sport. I don't know. Um, and then I said the Ratatouille principle again, which is uh, what I described earlier. And he said, go on. And I said, well, I'm wondering 
good teams are going to have good analytics. Does that seem like a fair statement? Absolutely. I, I, I absolutely believe that the better the analytics department, the likelier you are to win but, hockey games. And but I mean, but what I mean is like a very good team. If you look at their numbers, they will have good numbers. Does that sound like Colorado's going to have good numbers? Cause they're really good. And by good, I just mean a team with a winning record will probably have all of these positive things, right? Generally. Absolutely. <laughs> but does chasing those numbers necessarily lead to wins? Because I've heard players or at least representation for players agents and the like say, when it comes time to negotiate contracts, now that there are all these statistics, they come into play. So a player, you know, or, or a rep, again, a representative of a player, an agent will say, well, yeah, my player only scored 12 goals last year, but look at his underlying numbers. But the numbers are numbers can be manipulated any way you want. And so like, what I'm asking is like, you say you trust the coaching staff, you trust an analytics department to have all their in-house data, to have more refined data. But if a coaching staff is chasing an outcome that is data in the hopes of collecting wins along the way, like if a coach says, okay, in order to win, you need to be a team that is dominating puck possession, dominating scoring opportunities, dominating all these categories. Therefore, the way to win is to try and make sure that these numbers are high. Is that sort of the the tail wagging the dog? Is that or is that the is that are you coming at it from the wrong side of the equation from a coaching perspective i think it's important to communicate that certainly these ideas matter mm -hmm. but at the same time you're also coaching personnel decisions how guys work well together on specific lines fundamentals those kinds of things you're dealing with granular detail in terms of how to play the game I think it's important for a coach to sort of translate what data suggest into how to coach and understand fundamentals a good bit better. I think that translation is really important, but I don't necessarily think it's something where a coach needs to necessarily, and some do this and that's fine, but I don't necessarily think it's a requirement to sort of speak like a data scientist and explain, well, we need to increase our expected goal numbers. And by doing these things, we will be able to complete our mission, so to speak. I, I don't necessarily think that's important. I do think it is important to make sure that you are teaching the right things and coaching the right ideas to where the data will ultimately bear out these ideas for how to play winning hockey. So last question before I let you go, uh, but understanding I'm going to have you right back <laughs> in like a week. Um, do you have a stat that you particularly trust or enjoy? Like what's like, for example, when I'm starting my story, if I'm looking at natural stat trick, my once upon the time is Corsi four. That's just the first thing I look at. It's not where I stop. It doesn't tell the whole story but it's just where i start like do you have a starting point when you're trying to figure out oh is this team any good expected goals usually is a place to start and specifically i want to look at who's calculating these expected goals because like i mentioned before a lot of different hockey entities calculate it in different ways some stress the importance of distance from the net a little bit more 
Some basically throw every single variable you can imagine into the mix, and then they proceed accordingly. I think also, and granted, sometimes you, you're dealing with small sample sizes, so you have to be careful, but sometimes expected goals with specific lines, maybe even with specific blue lines, how that can come together, I, I think matters a good bit. And what I also want to figure out is, okay, so these are the expected goals. What are the actual goals being scored? Is a team overperforming their expected goal numbers or underperforming them? And usually that's a good way for me to figure out how to anticipate success going forward. And so if your expected goal number is say, and specifically I'm keeping this simple, but let's say your expected goal number is 10, but your actual goals are eight. Well, then you should expect improvement, positive regression to the mean going forward. If it's the other direction where, say, you have 10 goals, but the expected goal for is eight, well, then you are overperforming, and then you need to look at why. Is it because you have some incredible sharpshooters that are, are difficult to sort of explain through data, or are you just lucky? And that can require watching the games and figuring some things out, looking at who's shooting, who's scoring, those kinds of things. But it's that difference between actual versus expected that tells me a good bit about what to expect going forward. And for the most part, it's a reliable approach. I'm thrilled that you said that because this is a perfect place to stop and pick up next time um, because that I think- What a teaser. Yeah, because that I think actually is probably the biggest narrative going right now for the Kings, which is the, the gap between their actual goals and their expected goals. It's worst in the league, if I'm not mistaken, and everybody talks about it. So, uh, Ed, we're going to have you back on and we're going to drill down harder into that concept and those numbers. Um, but hopefully this was a good uh, starting point for this conversation. Thank you very much for joining me. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. Talk to you soon, King Saints. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.